0: Numbers chapter five tonight I've shortened the reading if you've looked at the chapter you might you might know why I've shortened the reading Um, there is such a thing as buyer's remorse you buy something and then you're deeply vexed why you bought that thing there is a thing as seller's remorse I chose this book to preach through it and I aim to preach through it if we have anybody here left at the end of the series I'm having a fun time studying and preparing. So it's super interesting to me. But we are hitting some, we are hitting some heavy duty passages. <laughs> this is a purity passage, a holiness passage, which holiness is not a crowd pleaser, generally speaking. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at um, Numbers chapter 5. There are three sections in, in, in Numbers. 5, 1 through 10 contain two sections. And then the, 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 the section which is, to my mind, a doozy which is uh, verse 11 to the end. If you look at Numbers, it's, it is a, it's a test for an unfaithful wife. So I thought it will take all my skill in praying and fasting next week. To, if we actually do this one next week, we'll see. Pray for me uh, for next week. So we're going to save that adultery test one. You may have been waiting for that uh, for this week. You're a strange person. But let, let's look at verses 1 through 10. Numbers, 1 through 10, part of the Pentateuch, First five books of the Bible, the way that we put it in the Greek and then the 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 Hebrew is Torah, um, and so the first five books written by Moses, inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. Numbers five verse one: This is the Holy Word of our Holy God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge, everyone who is unclean because of a dead person." You shall send away both male and female, and you shall send them outside the camp, so that they will not defile the camp where I dwell in their midst. The sons of Israel did so, and sent them outside of the camp, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, when a man or a woman commits any of the sins of mankind, acting unfaithfully against the Lord, and that person is guilty, he shall confess his sin which he has committed, he shall make restitution in full for his wrong, and add to it one-fifth, and give it to him whom he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution which is made for the wrong must go to the Lord, for the priest, beside the ram of atonement by which atonement is made for him. Also every contribution pertaining to all the holy gifts of the sons of Israel which they offer to the priest shall be his, meaning the priest's. So every man's holy gifts shall become his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it becomes his. Uh, this is God's word. Let, let's pray. Almighty God, you are a good and a gracious and a loving God. We thank you for this day, a day that you have set aside for us, the Christian Sabbath, when we can rest from our ordinary labors uh, and uh, ordinary recreations insofar as we have the ability, Lord, unless we are engaged in acts of necessity and mercy, but you, you call this day to be a day that we can set aside for public and private worship where we could, we could adore you and learn of you and, and worship you with brothers and sisters in Christ. Picture of heaven. I pray, gracious God, that you would be with me tonight and be with all of us. Give us the requisite faith, eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to love and obey. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So there are a number of things that make um, th- this particular book a little bit hard to, uh, to understand, particularly if, um, if you're new to the Bible. I didn't start reading the Bible for myself really until I was 26. And th- the minister I met said, Jack, read from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Keep doing that. And then he let me go to Romans. And so as soon as a minister tells you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you start at Genesis. You do the opposite of what the minister says. JK. JK. And so by the time I got to books like this, the book of, for me it was Leviticus, but this would have thrown me too. If you don't have the the New Testament really under your belt, a working knowledge of the the, the New Testament, you're going to have a hard time when you come here. Because what we're looking at is we're looking at the gospel in ceremonial form. And so the New Testament is, is the Old Testament full-grown. Augustine, famous saying, the New Testament is the Old Testament in full bloom. The Old Testament is the New Testament in seed form. That was Augustine. So we, we kind of read the, 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 the Old Testament through Christological lenses, through our New Testament. So if you know your New Testament, you know the book of Hebrews particularly, because the book of Hebrews explains for us the ceremonial law. And so there are three kinds of law in, in the Old Testament. You have the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, and then Jesus further summarizes uh, the Ten Commandments under two heads. The two greatest commandments in the Bible are love God perfectly, love man perfectly. That's a summary of the moral law. Moral law is perpetual. It doesn't change from epoch, old epoch to new epoch. We're going to be obeying the moral law perfectly in heaven. So it's a, it's an expression of God's Moral character as the moral governor. Then in the Old Testament, it contains ceremonial law, which is what we're looking at with all these purification business. These things are fulfilled in Christ. They're typological. We've talked about this a lot. The book, Again, the book of Hebrews will explain this. Christ is the high priest. R- remember John 1? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the what? Sins of the world. This is John the Baptist pointing at the Lord Jesus. John the Baptist is Christ's cousin's. He's saying, Behold the Lamb of God. He's saying, He's Exodus 12. He's Jesus is Exodus 12. He's Exodus 13. He's the Passover. Or He's Leviticus chapter 16. He's the scapegoat. That's what He's doing. And so, even the Old Testament saints, Hebrews chapter 11, understood the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus in this. So how did Abraham know Christ? How did Moses know Christ? Moses knew Christ. The David knew Christ? Because in the ceremonial law, Christ is the high priest. Christ is the oblation of the sacrifice, all of these things. So when we understand that, wh- wh- why this ram of atonement, ultimately, it's not the ram's blood that will wash us from sin. That's the type. Christ is the anti-type. It's the lamb's blood who will wash us from sin. Does that make sense? So we're actually going back in time, redemptive history, and we have our New Testament lenses on, so th- this is ceremonial law. Gospel truths are being preached in type and shadow. There's one more form of law, which is called judicial law. It's particular to the nation state, but the, theor- the, the, the theocratic nation state of Israel. Modern Israel is not a theocracy. Ancient Israel was a theocracy. The church and the state were like this, by God's design. And so when you see some of these particular rules, don't have, don't sew two threads and rules on slavery and all of those things, those are judicial laws. And we maintain as Protestant Reformed Christians that those things go away with the annulment of the theocratic state. And when the theocratic state w- was, w- was no more was AD 70, when Titus sacked uh, Rome. It, the only thing that would be applicable is something that would be akin to the moral law, the moral principle. So, but we're looking at, maybe that, the third one is for another sermon, but we're looking at an aspect of the ceremonial uh, law. Now, when we look at a passage like this, again, it's kind of hard. If you're not used to reading these kind of passages, you just think, "What in the world are you going to say about uh, this?" In a passage like this, I would argue the best way to study it is to fly over it with you, get your plane out and fly over the passage and get a big picture view, a bird's eye view. Because sometimes you're like, wait a minute, what? And then we have to do this, and then this, and then this. We get bogged down with the details. But if I could get you up above the trees and have you look at the forest, you're going to go, oh, I see some of the larger concepts. God is saying that he is clean. God is pure. God is holy. And he can't abide with man when man is unclean. And then even coupled with that is the notion that God has to provide that which cleanses man, that he could be brought back into relationship or fellowship with God. Does that make sense? So that's gospel. God is holy. God is pure. Man is not. God provides that which makes man pure. Which is that? Does that make sense? So when you kind of look at it through St. Augustine's lenses, you understand this is easy-squeezy. This is gospel truth here. Uh, But we're going to What we're going to do tonight is according to, what did I do? Okay, the purity of God, the purity of his people. Purity and holiness I'm using interchangeably. There are some theologians that maintain a distinction. I'm not smart enough to figure out the distinction, so I'm just using them as synonyms. We're looking at the holiness of God, and God requires his people be holy. This is not a crowd pleaser. Um, I, I hope we are pleased with it. We should be pleased with everything about our God, but The fundamental truth, this is teaching here in um, this chapter, is God requires holiness because he is holy. I was trying to find it in 1 Peter. I know it's 1 Peter. Be ye holy, it's quoting Leviticus. Go ahead and fill it. Be ye holy as what? As I am holy. That's this. This, verses 1 through 10, is the holiness of God, and he requires holiness from his people. We must be cleansed to live in his holy presence. Let me, give, let me give you some, since we're looking at it thematically, is, is my intention, we're just going to unpack the theme of God's holiness and his, his um, mandate that we would be holy to live in his presence. Let me give us some additional scripture proofs. I promise I'm not lucky dipping. Lucky dipping is just, you know what lucky dipping is. You just fling open your Bible. Don't lucky dip. When you do your Bible study in the morning, I hope you do it every morning, lucky dipping is you just wake up and you flip it open, what does God have to say to me? It's better than nothing if you're going to have to lucky dip in, or no Bible lucky dip. But you can make the Bible say nutty things. You can take things out of context. But I, I promise I'm not. If you'll if you you listen to the text that I'm going to bring in, that will show clearly. God says, and because he's, he, the theologians call about it the simplicity of God, he's not 50% justice and 50% mercy. He's 100% everything. But he talks about holiness a lot. Um, the Bible says this. This is 1 Samuel chapter 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And then he uses the two uh, Hebrew words there, Adonai, Master, uh, Elohim, Creator God. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. This is Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. He says, there's only one God. All the other gods on the planet, the so-called gods, Paul says through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are no God, so the one God of the Bible, the Bible says, is the only God. God says, none of the other gods are real, I'm the only one that there is, and i'm holy. First Peter, ah, here it is, but as he who called you, this is the one who calls us out of darkness to, to the light of Christ, is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You see that idea? God is our creator, but in this context, we're owning him as our redeemer, as our savior. So God says essentially, I saved you. We've not been saved because we are holy people. (laughs) We've been saved because we are unholy people. He's a holy God, and now he calls us to a life of holiness. Does that make sense? That's what we're looking at in seed form. Maybe, um, maybe one more. So I mentioned, I think this morning, Isaiah. You remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? He gets his commission, his call. God calls him to, to be a preacher to Israel. You would think this is be awesome. He's called to be a preacher. Everybody's going to love him. <laughs> it's the exact opposite. They're going to they, they want to take him off the planet. And so he says. Here I am, Lord. He cries out, I'm a man of unclean lips, because he sees just the train of God's robe. And he, he, here's a man who's loved by God, who loves God, and he cries out, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a, a people of unclean lips. So here's a guy that loves the Lord, but when he comes close to the holiness of God, it overwhelms him. God is too holy. People think like if we could see Je- if Jesus is here spiritually because he says he walks among the lampstand of his church, so he's here, he's omnipresent because he's he is God. But if we could see the risen Lord Jesus like right here, like John on the Isle of Patmos, what would, what position would, would we all have? <laughs> we would be on the floor. We, we would be we would be terrified, because it's even as lovers of Christ and beloved of Christ, it's the holiness of God. We. Even the best believer, I'm not doubting a person's faith, even the uh, the best, strongest faith believer on the planet, we we only understand this much. We understand the Bible, but this much. To come into the presence of a holy God would, would overwhelm us. Now, when we're in glory, it will overwhelm us in a good sense because we'll have perfectly fitted bodies and perfected souls to dwell in God's immediate holy presence forever, but Isaiah says this, and the book of Revelation picks this up. And one call to one another. This is the cherubim singing back and forth. You, you know this. Holy, holy, holy. I said this every Sunday in my life. Holy, holy, holy. What is the Lord of hosts? And that's not, the, the host is savoyot, it's armies. It's the Lord who is the holy commander of the, the armies of heaven and earth. And the earth is full of his glory. That's what the holy angels... And you remember, they have six wings. Six, two, they fly. Two, they cover their face. And two, they cover their feet. So even angels that didn't lose their first estate, they kept their integrity, the holiness of God is too overwhelming for them. That's behind this. Once, once we could get that, and what the holiness of God... If Maybe I could just d- 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 define it. The holiness of God is an ethical uh, uh, um, a statement or attribute... God is utter righteousness, utter purity. He is the absence of all sin. To use his language to John the Apostle, there is no darkness, there's no shadow, there's no turning. We've talked about this before in studies. There are theologians, most of them like some unbelieving people, they talk about the peccability of Christ or the impeccability of Christ. Was it possible for Christ to sin? I cannot even hear this without wanting to break furniture, I must tell you. To hear that Christ could sin, some people refer to Jesus as Jesus Ben Patera, Jesus the son of Patera, that the Virgin Mary was not virgin when she conceived Christ. I just want to break furniture when I hear that because it besmirches, the ho- it's attributing what's in us to Holy Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who is spotless. So when we're thinking of God, there is no sin. There is no darkness. We talked about this morning on Mount Zeus or, or Mount Olympus, where Zeus, the false god Zeus, you look at the, we took Greek myth in, in, in school. I don't know what they do in school now, but we did then. The gods were, the Greek gods were like what? They're like, they're like men that could, they just have superpowers. They're stealing this girl, they're stealing that, they're doing this. That's not the God of the Bible, The God of the Bible is morally spotless. That's what God is saying. And like that, Jesus says, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So God is holy. The Bible says that his eyes are too pure to do what? You know what it says in the book of Habakkuk? God's eyes are too pure to do what? To look upon sin with favor. Now, King David said of himself, that he was conceived in sin in his mother's womb. He didn't mean his mom was profligate. He meant that his mom is a sinner and she gave birth to a little sinner and he's a sinner. And God is holy. So how can we be in his presence? It's this. God is going to provide the cleansing. So the holiness of God, the holiness of his, his people. Now, I, I will say this. This is how I keep the church manageably small. The, Mm-hmm. This subject, God is holy, and he requires his people to live holily. Now, it's obviously by the grace of God, looking to the Christ of God, the Holy God, the Holy Bible, the Holy Gospel, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Son, everything is holiness. And Christians are referred to as hagios. We're, the Bible will say, to the, to the what in Corinth, to the what in Ephesus, to the what in Philippi? Saints. That's hagios, to the holy ones. So to say, I am a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then live like an unholy one, is oxymoron. It's antithetical to Christ. Now, do I say, do, am I saying that we can be sinless? No, I'm not. We will not. When will we, Christians, stop sinning? When they say, Pastor John is gone, he's in heaven. When we die. But the notion is that we are not to habitually practice our sin. We are to habitually chase Jesus Christ. And then when we sin, which is daily, the recourse for the Christian is what? Repentance. Lord God, forgive me. Lord God, change me. Lord God, help me. But I would argue this, and you, you could differ, and maybe you think, well, Pastor, you're just three-quarters Irish. That's why you're so, such a negative Nelly. I don't think so. If we were to look out at the American church, and I'm not picking on any American church, but just the American church, do we look markedly holy? Can you look and go, that's a Christian. That, that is a Christian. We should be able to look at a Christian marriage and go, that's a Christian husband. That's a Christian wife. Those are Christian kids, Christian mom and dad. We should. We read the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. All of these things. So these things should be audible or tangible. Can we? Can we? (laughs) We are in the last days. I know it's been the last days since Jesus left the mountain. I know that. I think a lot of professing Christians, morally, you cannot tell us apart. From the pagan. Am I right on that? I think I'm close. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what? What I say. So I, I promise I'm telling you the truth. It's the word here. Be you holy as I am holy. Jesus didn't say, be I am holy, and boy, you know, the gospel is just believe in Jesus and then live like Sheol and go to heaven. But the Bible doesn't say that. I do believe in justification by faith alone. Yes, I do. But that's actually going to look like something in a life of holiness, a life of good works. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter twelve, I think verse fourteen, without what no one will see the Lord. It's not Sune holiness, which is righteousness or justification. It's a form of the hagios. It's sanctification. It's practical. Dying to sin, growing in righteousness. So this idea that we have been saved by Holy Christ from our uncleanness in order to live holy, even though I think this is like Christianity 101. I, I really do think this. This is like ABCs. Sometimes I tell my wife, am I speaking Ugaritic or something? Because sometimes people like, what are like, what are these strange things that you're saying? And I think, well, this is ABCs. I don't think the church is teaching the ABCs. And all you have to do is look at how Christians, our entertainment is like the world, we divorce like the world, we cuss like the world, we do everything. Just take a couple, just take a few commandments. I I promise I'll pull back on my hobby horse. Take a few commandments, any of the 10, and apply them spiritually. Uh, I think I'm correct. So this message is necessary. Let me show the connection of chapter 5 with the chapters that have gone before it. Obviously, four chapters that have gone before it. And um, within the first four chapters, you have two themes running through. You have the census of God's people, the numbering of God's people, and particularly two entities. You have the, 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 um, the military men, the warrior class, and I think those guys are what? Are they 20 to 50? I think it's 20 to 50 or 20 to 60. I forget. Um, Twenty? No, we have the lower age. We, we have no upper age limit given in the book of Numbers, but I think there is an upper age limit, but 20 is the base limit. So you number the military men, and then there's number not only my military servants, but I want you to number my priestly servants. So descending from Levi. And then God has the numbering of his people, and then in those four chapters... He has the organization of God's people. He orders the camp. So remember, they've been liberated from 430 years of slavery. They're, right, they're one or two years liberated from slavery. They're just entered into the promised land. They've disobeyed God. So instead of an 11-day journey to take them into Cana, it's going to take them 40 years. <laughs> so they, they should have made it in 11 days, but they said, we don't want to go. The people are too big for us. And God said, wrong answer And now I'm going to run you around the desert for 40 years until all of that military age generation dies off. And then I'll bring you in. So the book of Numbers constitutes the time that the children of Israel are walking around in the desert. While God is leading them to humble them and make them dependent upon him. So when he organizes the camp, they're a traveling, a pilgrim group. And he has three tribes. They travel as a big square, three tribes in front three in the sides, three in the back, and then the, the, the tribal families and armies. And then in the middle of the camp is the tent of presence, the tent of meeting. And that's surrounded by the Levitical families. That's where God puts his abiding presence. The, the, um, uh, the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat, where the high priest would go and sprinkle blood, that's a picture of the gospel. That's in the center of the camp. So we have the numbering of the people, We have the uh, organizing of the people. And what we have here is what we've been talking about, is the cleansing of God's people. Now, I originally was going to take all three sections, but they're all cleanliness or holiness sections. They're related. In verses 1 through 4, there's the holiness of the person, which depicts to us that we're natural-born sinners, and then you see from 5 to 10 that we're sinners when we are in relationship with other people. We defraud people. So we're sinners inherently, and then we're sinners practically. Um, and then the last section, so you have sin in the person, sin in neighborly relations. And then the section that I left off is that God requires holiness in the marital union. Um, and, and then we say so he requires holiness in the person Holiness in the man-to-man relationships, and then holiness in the marital relationship, something like that. But that that's the general thrust. We'll deal with the holiness of the marriage relationship next week, deal with that thematically. I want to look at those first two things. That God says that in ourselves we're unclean and we need cleanliness just by being a human being. And 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 then um, we, we are we have been imputed. This is the doctrine of original sin. We've been imputed and then conveyed the sin of Adam. And then from that, we're actual sinners. So even if you have a little bitsy, the little bitsy before the baby can do any actual sin is a sinner by imputation and by conveyance because of the sin of Adam. So we're not saying that a little kid could actually consciously sin. Let's say like a a, a two-day-old. But they have the sin of Adam imputed to them. Now, when they get big enough, they commit actual sins. And so the first it, it part talks to us as sinners inherently from the fall of Adam, and then what actually happens to us when we get some age, we practice sin, if that makes sense. So we're looking at the holiness of God, what God says about holiness, and we're looking at also what God thinks about um, sin. When you look at all three of those things, and he, he is essentially t- saying to his people, I'm a holy God. I require you to be a holy people. But look at the three things that we have just talked about. Holiness in person, holiness in man-to-man relationships, and holiness in marital relationships. So what God is saying is this. I I am holy all the time. I require my entire camp. This is the people of God. So the church. I would refer to this as the church. And it's just not me making it up. I know dispensationalist Christians. I'm not picking on dispensational Christians. I used to be one. But Acts chapter 7, seven calls the, 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 the people of Israel, um, it calls them the church. Um, in, so the, the Holy Spirit says in Acts 7 about this, they were the church. So God is saying, I want all of my people to be holy at all times in all of their relationships, or they need cleansing. This is the problem, beloved. When people say... Well, when I die, I've heard people say this. I'll—I'm I'll, not really a Christian, and but when I die, I'll—I'll I'll talk it over with God. He and I will have a little chat, and um, I'll tell him my side of the things, and he'll just let me in. The, the problem is, you're treating God as a peer. In, actually, you're treating God as an inferior. No one talks to God like that, and I, I'm not being crass or flippant at all. A God that is. The god of the bible you you won't even get a word out his 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 holiness is so blindingly overwhelming you'll be on your face And the book of philippians chapter 2 1 through 11 says what you're going to say you're going to be on your knees and then he will force you to say jesus is lord and then he will say what what will he say depart from me depart so when people view man's problem before God wrongly, it's always too small. I need a little education. I need a little tweaking. I, little, I need a little this. So what they do is they see man's problem is a small thing, and they, they make the solution a small thing. That's why you think, well, I don't really need Jesus, Jesus. I don't need the blood of Jesus. I could just do something else, and God will be okay. If God says, since he does say, you're inherently sinful from the fall of Adam. You need cleansing. Your man to man relationships are all sin. You sin against people all day long in thought, word, and deed. And then your marital relationships also are tainted with sin. So I require perfect holiness at all times, and you're not. Well, what's the penalty for sin? It's death. It's death. The penalty for sin is not trying to do better. The penalty for sin is death. So unless God says, I'm providing the Lamb of Atonement, unless God says, I'm providing my Son, none of us are going to heaven. No, no, none of us are clean. We're all unclean. All of us. So I don't say this to frighten everybody. Our view of God is too small. Our view of His holiness is too small. And our view of sin is way too small, way, way too small. My grandfather, my paternal grandfather, I knew I was way closer to him. His name was Jack. My name was Jack. And I got my name John back when I went to college. But I was a scoundrel. And he would just say, oh, Jack, that's just Jack. You know, living like a scallywag, that's just Jack. Jack. And my father would say, Well, you think, you know, don't you think God will be like that? No, 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 I don't think, as much as I love my grandfather, he's not holy like God. And so God is not just going to go, Well, well, my bad, I guess you're bad. And so he requires all of his people at all times and all of their relationships to be clean, (laughs) which is why we have his need. So this is teaching us this passage here. Um, we see sin as uh, something which is inherent. It's a sickness, leprosy. As we see sin is related to death. Sin is not, death is not natural. It's, it's related to the curse of God for man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience particularly. Then we see a, a sin is fraud. And then another thing that we're going to see next week, but I'll bring it in now, sin is unfaithfulness. I, and what I mean, and I don't mean to be crass again, is sin is described by God as adultery. Um, You know, people say, well, I'm a good person. Imagine if I told you, well, I have bad news for you. You're not a good person, and you're an adulterer. I might get a punch in the mouth for that. Because if someone was staunchly faithful to their spouse, and I just called them an adulterer, I might have to go see the dentist after that. But God says in the book of James, chapter 4, 1 through 10, you're adulteresses. You've made yourself friends with the world. God says it. He uses the wo- the Greek word. There's two Greek words for it. He uses the one which is adultery. Adultery, not just porneia. It's moicheia is the Greek for the adultery. So sin is leprosy. Sin results in death. It's a walking death. Separation from God. In sin is adultery, and God says for all of these things we need cleansing. That's the bad news. And the good news is that he provides it. Does that make sense? So in AA, in Twelve Steps Anonymous," Emotions Anonymous," all those things I'm not picking on them. Everybody I love has gone to these things. They, they say that it's not sin, it's a character defect, or it's a disease. I'm not picking on anybody. If you have a cousin Bobby that goes to AA, "I love Bobby, I probably know Bobby. It's not a character defect. It's a sin, and sin is lawlessness, and it needs the blood of the ram, the blood of the lamb. And again, we, we just want to be Bible believers, even if the Bible takes us places where we're like, wow, that kind of feels uncomfortable. But we don't want to say, you, you say, well, why are you a Christian? I'm a Christian because my folks are Christian. That's a good answer, but what does it mean that you're a Christian? And what it means ultimately is this. We are unclean before a clean God, and Christ cleanses us. That's a Christian. That's a Christian. That's a Christian. We can fight over the secondary or tertiary things, but that's a Christian. God is clean. I am unclean. I'm made clean by the blood of the Lamb. That's it. That's it. That's this. Let's look at the leprosy. So um, the, 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 the three people that depict that we're inherently born sinners by the imputation, when I say imputation and conveyance, So there are two deleterious effects to Adam's fall. So we get his guilty sentence reckoned to us. The Greek is logitsomai. It's outside of us. It's forensic. It's legal. It's the guilty sentence, death. But that's kind of judicial. The other thing is we have his uh, corruption of nature conveyed to us through ordinary generation. The reason I have bad eyesight and all the other things that are wrong with me is because it's been conveyed to us through natural... Um, reproduction. Those are the two things. That's what I mean by it. So we have a couple of pe- people, people that depict we're natural born sinners. People with leprosy, people that have a bodily discharge, and then people that touch dead people. They all reveal to us that man is not a good person that sometimes does a bad, bad things. It teaches us that we're all... This is everybody. So this is like not picking on anybody in particular that we're all unclean. We come out of our mother unclean. This is everyone. Everyone is a leper before God. Everyone is unclean because of these bodily discharges before God. Everyone is walking dead and like a dead man before God just by being born. And so when you think of the leprosy, what's, what's actual leprosy? Maybe someone who's a nurse or a doctor. I think it's Hansen's disease is what modern leprosy is called, Hansen's disease. I don't think this is necessarily Hansen's disease. If you look at, remember I, I mentioned Leviticus and Numbers as ceremonial law. The book of Leviticus, what, what, what Moses is pulling from is all throughout this section, he's referring to with the leprosy, Leviticus 13 and 14. When he gets to the bodily discharge section, it's Leviticus 15. I think the dead people, he gets back to Leviticus 11. So it, it's ceremonial law. The, leper, the leprosy there is more like a skin disorder. And if you look at it, you think, I've had that before. I had to go to get my cortisone shot. I, I had to get, like, I've, I've had that. Well, yeah, everybody in this room has some, had some species of that. And what would that tell you? You are unclean before a clean God. And then where would you go next? You're separated from the people of God. This separation that's here, I didn't even want to say it, but I'll say it now since I've just gone, I'll just go whole hog and say it. It's a form of excommunication. Ex-communic- God is separating the unclean from the clean himself and from the clean in the people ceremonially. He's separating them. This is a form of excommunication. And so he's saying to us here, you, you, can't, you can't dwell with me. Now, my wife and I were talking about the passage this afternoon. She says, this seems, like people are going to think this seems kind of mean. I, I know that. But I didn't write the Bible. He's separating them. If you read Leviticus 13 and 14, do you remember what the, le- the leper had to do? It's, it's horrible. It's horribly painful. This is the low view of sin. We think, ah, sin, ah, whatever, I don't know. But the leper had to walk around beating their breast, Saying what? Unclean, unclean. They couldn't be in the camp, which is where the presence of God is. They couldn't be with God, and they couldn't be with man. Remember when we were kids in the Christmas thing, the Christmas bumble? Remember the bumble? Bumbles don't do something, they bounce. It was the little clay figurines. And then the, the guy was mushing the whip, going to get the bumble, and then the, the island of the misfit uh, uh, um, toys. He he said, I'm not fit for uh, company for man or beast. What leprosy tells us as human beings, we're not fit company for God or for man. It's a picture of walking death. And God says, for that, you need to be clean. And then he brings up the bodily discharge. And I promise I'm going to be extra circumspect. Um, And even if it was all males, I wouldn't speak crassly anyways. You can read Leviticus what did I say? 15. You can read Leviticus 15. Everyone in this room, based on that, is unclean. And not just like a one-shot wonder. We're regularly unclean. Because you would say, well, that's, that's part of the natural function. Yes, it is. Yes, it, that's, so God is telling us that we're inherent-born sinners. We need Christ coming out of the womb. See say, well, I can't get around that. No, you can't get around that. And so it's not just a one shot that you did something for which you need atonement. You, you are a sinner all the time. And what does that mean? You need cleansing all the time. Sometimes I hear Christians, modern Christians, obviously modern Christians, say, oh, I wish I could go back in the Old Testament. Wouldn't it be so cool to live in the Old Testament? I do not think so. We live in the newer, in the better covenant, the better epoch. The Old Testament priest, what, what was he? A butcher. He had hip waders on, and he's cutting the throat of stuff all day long. You sinned against your neighbor, you trot off with a critter. He cuts the critter's throat. You walk back to the house grumbling that you had to give him your best critter. Now you've got to get the next best critter because you're grumbling, and you got to... You're living. You're living there. You, you, it, this is the book of Hebrews. It's not going to clean our conscience. So we need cleansing... All the time. All the time. Born sinners, we're walking dead men, leprosy. We have the bodily discharge. It shows us you're unclean all the time. You need all the time cleansing. And it's male and female. This isn't gender specific or sex, whatever the word is. I use both of them interchangeably. And then the last one is, if you've touched a dead person, you become unclean. And I I will say this. Maybe as moderns, we think, well, I got you there, Pastor. I have never touched a dead person. I don't know about that. So, so maybe if you're younger, maybe. But I grew up in New England, and every funeral mass that ever was within 50 miles, I went to. And so I've kissed it. We would kiss. I don't know why we did it. I don't know whether it was unique to my family. We would, they put, put a kneeler in front of the coffin, and I don't know how many dead people I have kissed But I've kissed a boatload. I know it's strange. This is why I'm on the shrinks couch. But I've done a a boatload. But I'm going to say, of any age, have you ever touched a person that has died? Yeah. 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 My dad, my mom. Yeah. And I'll be 59 pretty quick here. My father, he would say this all the time. Raised outside of Boston. And he would lament this. He would say that both sets of his parents, paternal and maternal, grandparents, and all of his uncles and aunts live within a two-mile radius. All of them. Everybody. And he said if anybody died in the family, the women would wake the dead in the the house. They would prepare the body. This is just my dad's generation. So everyone... everyone, So if, if it's your mom and your dad, everyone... God forbid, son, daughter, brother, sister, everyone would be doing this. And the connection that God wants us to make is not just we can't get out of this sin business. God also wants to do this. And I I, I probably, I'm going to stop with the other section because I don't want to go too long. I just want to make this point. God wants us to connect sin with the concept of death. Not character defect, Not disease, but breaking God's law. And the wages for breaking God's law is separation from God, which is why God says, but I've provided for the ram of atonement. I've provided for the Levitical priestly class, which they're all pointing to priest Jesus and the blood of the lamb, not the blood of the lamb. I would argue if we thought about sin to the degree that we can, that that, that God thinks about it, and we think about the holiness of God, what would it do to us, practically speaking? What would it do? We would love Christ like nobody's business. Christ would be more important to us than, than the world. Why? What does Jesus say? What would it profit the man if you got the whole world, but you were to die and be called by God, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You're unclean. But if God pronounces on you hagios, clean, covered with the blood of the Lamb, it's to have more than 10,000 upon 10,000 worlds. Beloved, our God is holy, and by God's grace, we are called to be holy as he is holy. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.